Welcome to Bespoke Investment Group's Bespoke Cast. I'm George Perks, macro strategist for Bespoke Investment Group. Bespoke Cast features conversations with markets professionals and economists whose views we find interesting or insightful into the world of finance and economics. If you like what you hear today, you can learn more about our firm by visiting our website, bespokepremium.com. Bespoke offers financial market research and insight to investors of all types, ranging from individuals to large institutions. You can follow us on Twitter at Bespoke Invest. If you enjoy Bespoke Cast, we would also appreciate you reviewing the podcast in the iTunes Store or on your favorite podcast platform. Reviews help us gain visibility and also help us improve the podcast in future episodes. Provider joining us, uh, my friend Peter Pinksov is the principal at Jade Markets. Uh, Jade does quantitative research um, that is very different from a lot of the stuff that's out there and is going to provide us a really interesting lens on markets from a much shorter term perspective than uh, we've tended to look at things on this podcast. So we're really excited to have him. Uh, Peter, welcome to... Hey, George. Thank you very much for having me. So you're joining us from New York City, uh, where you've been for the last few years. Is that correct? Yeah, I've been here for... uh, You know, I moved here about three years ago, I went back to Boston for a little while, and then I just came back at the start of the year. So, and have you been glad to be back? Have you been in uh, markets since uh, you left college? Basically, yeah, I left college in uh, 2013. I finished my undergrad, and then I actually got into law school. And I went to law school for a little while until uh, somebody, <clears throat> funny enough, off Twitter offered me a job at a hedge fund. That's how I kind of dove into that whole world. <laughs> so, were you trading before you? Uh, like like while you were an undergrad in law school then i was i was trading while i was an undergrad in college i basically uh you know i had a pa opened up and i thought i was this like super smart kid like super naive obviously but i was like president of the uh kind of the uh, investment club that we had in college and uh yeah i traded my own account there um not too successfully but definitely not in a failure but um yeah i've been involved in markets basically since college so did you get started trading equities or did you jump right into futures? No, I didn't find out until about futures until probably, um, I, I mean, I always knew kind of what they were uh, conceptually, but I didn't actually trade them until maybe my first finance job. Um, I was mo- mainly an equity trader when I first started out. It might be good to talk a little bit about, for you know, for some of our listeners who aren't super familiar with um, the derivatives world and, and with futures, whether futures are a derivative or not is actually an interesting existential question that sometimes gets asked. Yeah. Um, but sort of talk a little bit about uh, what futures markets are, because I think um, from the perspective of somebody who's used to just, you know, cash equities in the U.S., it might not be super intuitive what exactly a future is. So like, like what is a futures contract? Okay, so basically a futures contract is um, an obligation between one party and another counterparty to deliver a certain product by a certain date. And uh, futures are the most liquid instruments in the world, and it's managed and moved by some of the biggest money managers and commodity traders in the world. And the whole purpose is to kind of offset risk between one party and another. So if you're, uh, let's say, a gasoline um, refinery and let's say you know you're you're short on oil and you need to refine more oil by your demands then you're going to buy some crude oil to kind of to kind of hedge out whatever risk that you have in terms of on the demand side in case prices increase etc etc so the whole point of futures contracts from a risk management standpoint and the conceptual framework is to offset risks now Most of the futures markets that when people talk about in terms of investing, 
they're mainly used for speculative purposes. If you're going to talk to people on Twitter, kind of people giving their outlooks on futures, um, when they're talking about the speculative side, that's completely different than what they were initially intended designed to do. So basically a futures contract is <clears throat> um, a way to offset risk, but also a way to speculate on a market. I think it's also worth uh, mentioning that futures contracts are standardized. So like if you're trading, um, you know, uh, WTI futures, that's always standardized to the same grade of crude delivered in the same place at the same part of the calendar each month, um, as opposed to, you know, um, other financial contracts where, you know, there's some more, some more um, variation in, in what you're talking about. Like, so for instance, Apple's earnings are by definition slightly different from Google's earnings or so on and so forth. If you're talking about WTI contracts, they're always WTI. So there's like, there's no optionality in spot futures markets, unlike in other uh, financial markets. The one exception, I think one exception, there might be a couple other small ones, but generally the one exception is bond futures. We don't have to talk about interest rate basis, but, um, but you know, it's standardized. And then it's also leveraged and, and um, all traded through the same exchange. So you have, um, you have to put up margin and you have to um, put, everyone sort of goes through the same ultimate counterparty that they're facing. You know, you don't have to worry about your neighbor, Bob, defaulting on your futures trade you have with him. Um, sure. So that those things like make it like a very attractive place for both speculators and hedgers because it encourages liquidity and it encourages, um, you know, the ability to, to, you know, hedge very, very large amounts of value without putting up much money or, you know, making a speculative bet on which way things go without putting up as much value. Sure. And to your point, you know, if there are there are different grades of crude and there are different grades of gasoline and uh, different sort of refined products, different grades of wheat, corn. And there's a you know, there's got, there's got to be at least 20 or 30 different exchanges all over the world that deal with different types. But uh, the biggest is definitely owned by the CME, uh, who uh, you know owns the Chicago Board of Trade, the NYMEX. And that's one of the biggest exchanges in terms of uh, futures markets. When you trade futures, do you have an area of focus that, that you that you look at or are you looking across markets? So, for instance, are you a crude trader? Are you a wheat trader? Are you a uh, cattle trader or are you just trading everything? Um, I used to have this belief that you can trade everything when I started, but it's mostly been, um, you know, I, when I first started working, uh, my first kind of job, all we focused on were the big four that I always call um, we always called them the four musketeers, and that was S&P, treasury bonds, gold, and oil. So kind of like the big four macro products. How did you move from sort of equities like single stocks, which I think almost everyone in this country certainly is at least vaguely familiar of how it works um, with, you know, all that to a world that's much more specialized and, you know, sort of um, involves more leverage and more financial complexity? Sure. Um, so you asked how, how I moved to it. So it was basically um, not my choice. I kind of moved into a job where it was a macro uh, focus and we mainly focused on indexes and the whole ETF structure kind of made more sense from a tax perspective to trade futures because there's a 60-40 a short-term gains tax treatment and it was a hedge fund when I, where I first started. So it made sense for, there was no reason to trade the ETFs. Um, especially with gaps and all that stuff. So we just focused on the future side. So that was kind of my first exposure to the futures markets. And, um, you know, the reason why 
we kind of stayed there is because obviously there's there's much more room for um, leverage, room for being more flexible in terms of after hours, and you know it, it actually kind of minimizes the complexity of of stock market because uh, I think Steve Cohen said you know the market isn't that hard. It's like 30, 30, 30, 30% of a stock's move is its industry. 30% of its stock's move is the index and 30% of the stock's move is whatever's actually going on in that company. So when you think about it, you know, when it, when you have a basket of specialized stocks, well, 30 to 40% of it is going to be based on whatever the hell the, the, I'm sorry, whatever the equity market's doing anyway. Um, so the focus became more, well, why focus on single individual companies where you're essentially kind of doing the same thing with uh, speculating on the market? So, yeah, you, you mentioned um, after hours. It's worth pointing out that futures contracts generally trade like 23, 23 and a half hours a day, uh, five days a week. Um, so you can trade mm. them at 2 a.m. or at 8 p.m. as well as at 10 a.m. or 2 p.m. Um, yeah. so, uh, very, very useful, um, attribute there for, um, people that are wanting to, uh, price or, um, uh, you know, speculate on risk at different, different periods of the day beyond the yeah. nine thirty to four that the U S equity market is open. Definitely not for the perfectionist though. You don't want to be that guy who's up at three o'clock in the morning trading all the time. Yeah. I think the, the, the way that one, uh, widely followed financial pundit in the US describes them as pajama traders. Um, yeah. <laughs> which is yeah. which may or may not be true because you know it's a global product. So you know you can have people, you know, huge pools of capital in Europe or Asia being just as active at two in the morning as, you know, the sort of uh, you know, risk addicted day trader in the US who's literally in their pajamas. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that first macro fund was was that you you did a lot of work with Vic Niederhofer, who's well known as somebody that managed fixed income and FX for uh, George Soros and the Quantum Fund in the 1980s. Um, was that your first job, or did you move to them after you spent time with um, that first macro shop? So the first shop was um, it was it was a firm in Pennsylvania. It was an RA. And uh, basically, we cultivated a hedge fund inside of it. Um, we kind of started out that way. And after that, um, you know, I spent a couple of years there, and then I moved over to uh, Victor Niederhofer's shop. How was working there? Because he's a he's a pretty eccentric guy. Um, yeah, he you know he's he's a brilliant man, and there's so much stuff I learned from him, and there's so many incredible people that came through there. Um, yeah, it's once in a lifetime experience, and. Uh, he asked me to come there, and uh, you know, it's, he, he's a very benevolent guy, and it was very funny. He actually, you know, when I was first moving to New York, I didn't have an apartment or anything, so he let me uh, actually just stay in his house in uh, Connecticut, and it's from that famous documentary that I'm sure most of the viewers have seen. So I actually lived in that house for uh, what was it, three or four months until I kind of got on my feet a little bit, and uh, before I moved into the city, actually. So. That was a very interesting experience. That's awesome. And he has the, the trading floor for his – it's not a fund. It's a family office, right? Yes. Yeah. So so they trade out of that house. <clears throat> uh, yeah. I was working in uh, New York City at the time. He, he was living in New York cool. City. Um, so 
I guess his approach and, and sort of the approach that you tend to follow as well, um, I think probably would best be described as like a quantitative approach um, to very short-term patterns in the market. Is that is that sort of like the English language version of, of what you guys do? Yeah, I think that's a that's a decent way of putting it. I think it's um, it's it's all about finding kind of what Victor always calls regularities in the market, and um, you know, going about kind of finding these regularities. It was a very just, open, sorry, just, yeah, sure. just real quick. You say, you say regularities as opposed to irregularities, which is interesting. Yeah. Uh, Irregular, I don't like that word because that implies that there's something irregular with whatever you're looking for versus a regularity. Um, it's, it's something that occurs in the market, let's say in the current regime, whatever you're testing, that's dependable, reliable, um, something you can anchor against. And, uh, you know, regularity is something that you don't just want one thing of um a regularity you want a few different regularities working for you and uh your job as a trader is to find certain regularities and go with the go with the tail at your back tail at your wind you know it's just really interesting because i think so much of the modern investing world has bought into some version you know weak form strong form whatever of the efficient markets hypothesis where you know you're looking people are very often describe their process as looking for places where the market is wrong as opposed to looking for places where the market isn't necessarily right or wrong but is is you know creating a pattern that you can take advantage of yes you see what i'm getting at there yeah i think you summarized that you articulated much better than than i could have um but basically that's exactly what it, i think the the, fo- the whole focus on quote-unquote inefficiencies or something is it's a little bit over my head it's not how i was taught to start the research process on i think starting with um a dynamic where something that's very easily can be explained uh pretty easily can be modeled you don't i don't think you need to be uh, program or anything to be to be a quant. I think even starting by writing observations by hand and kind of doing the summaries by hand is any good place to start. And uh, yeah, just just going from there and finding out something that's dependable um, is, is a great place to start if you want to be systematic. Yeah, I mean, I, there's a long history of this too. If you look at uh, you know reminiscences of a stock market operator, right? You know Jesse Livermore sitting in a bucket shop in the 1910s, uh, literally reading the ticker tape, and you know that he, he he you know that that book is somewhat apocryphal, but you know yeah. certainly um, there is precedent for people just sort of finding price pattern matching just in watching stock prices go by, you know, forget doing anything, even, sure. you know, with formal note taking or like creating some sort of model. Obviously the tools to do that now are much, much more accessible than they were in the 1910s. <laughs> but, um, sure. you know, like at the end of the day, what you're doing is, is pattern matching, right? Correct. So, um, pattern matching in the sense that it's not really so much chart based, but it's, you know, when you're staring at 10 different global macro markets every single day, all day for 10 hours a day, you kind of start to pick up on some ideas and then you start to, you, you know, you have some ideas you want to test and you just go from there. And uh, you just how I was taught to embrace the process was one from a scientific method one where you have a hypothesis, you test it, and if it's good, uh, it's good. Um, you know, it's, it's just one thing and you got to combine a bunch of one things to make a, a really good thing. 
to be clear, when I say pattern matching, I don't necessarily mean, oh, you're looking for a head and shoulders pattern on a 52-week sure, sure. chart or something like that. I just mean, you know, identifying a recurring thing that happens in markets and taking advantage of that to win. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. Absolutely. So I think it'd be good to talk a little bit about about how your process works with that. I mean, you said at one point you were taking notes by hand or, you know, just just looking at the markets, but now, you know, the Jade Research product, which we can talk about in a little bit more detail further on, I mean, you're doing much more advanced stuff. And, you know, I, I think you do, you did say, oh, well, you don't have to be a genius that knows how to code to be a quant or anything like that. I, true to a point, I mean, you're definitely doing, you're, you're, you're covering a lot of ground in your research though, um, and doing so not from some sort of statistical model that's wildly advanced, but, but certainly uh, requires a fair bit of horsepower to, to put out. So can you sort of talk about how comprehensive and, and um, you know, some of the sort of tools you use to, to start identifying some of those patterns? Sure. So um, how I start out with is I'm looking for something that's kind of interesting that's going on in the market. Uh, I, I start with looking at... Uh, First, it starts with intuition in the sense that I know what bonds and stocks are doing. And how I was taught is that there's an ecology between the movements of fixed income, commodities, and stocks. And uh, that model can be kind of be, uh, that model can be kind of articulated in the sense of categorical data. So kind of modeling moves between stocks, bonds, and commodities, and that's basically the starting point of my, uh, my research process. Um, I don't really want to get too detailed into it, but it's, um, it, it, it works from that framework. And then I get into the regularity side of it. Basically, the model starts top-down in the sense that I'm looking for flows um, that have been true in the past with a high degree of confidence that, you know, that, that, I want to, that I want to take advantage of. And then I couple that with a bunch of smaller things that might help out that system. I'm, I'm going to maybe, maybe something you could do here is we could talk about like a hypothetical example. I am literally going to make up every single input to this quote unquote model. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, sure. I got it. I got a good one. So this one's kind of very well known. That's why, that's why I'll talk about it. So Pretty good one is like let's say oil has gone up, uh, you know, fifteen dollars in two weeks or something. Well, this large move actually has quite an impact on inflation that's not immediately priced into the market. And this large move in oil, if you do a like a regression between a fifteen-day change in oil versus T-bond prices, like ten days out. Well, you don't really want to be long bonds like when oil goes up so fast, so quick. And it's not something that's quickly priced into the market. And that's one kind of uh, bias that you get from a, like a regression model. And then you have to, you know, you go a step further and then you have to find out, well, what kind of patterns are going on in bonds in terms of price patterns, right? Uh, and then kind of go systematic from there. So my whole thing so, is like top down. To, so yeah. so like to, to, to make up a number here, just to sort of um, flesh it out a little bit more so people are, are getting a little bit deeper read of it. So let's say, for instance, that oil's up, as you said, $15 in two weeks and bond prices are, let's say, flat over that time period. You're going to you're going to look at that and say, OK, well, you know, I should be biased bearish on bonds. Um, but 
you know, maybe bond prices are flat over these um, two weeks, but they're down five days in a row. How does that impact my my hit rate, you know, based on the first cut through? How does the fact that they're trading, you know, their low is or their close is lower than their um, open every day of those five days? You know, yeah. that sort of I'm not saying those are specific indicators you use, but just sort of um, deeper cuts on on price patterns in those individual securities. You're, you're absolutely right. And, um, you know, you don't want to make the mistake of filtering those price patterns with that kind of model. So let's say you're looking for those kind of price patterns, the open, whatever, whatever you're testing. But then you also filter that same back test with oil is up $15 in two weeks. That's uh, a classic problem in statistics. That's called multiple comparisons, basically, like. The, the theory there is that the more independent variables you have, the more likely you have like a fake system. So this, the- so in other words, you take that top-down look, and then you you say, okay, I'm biased bearish bonds, and then you look at an individual you know indicator for a given security or, or for a given futures market or you know price pattern or whatever, and you're not you're not fil- you're not saying okay let me look at this price pattern when the prior occurrence is appearing, but no, let me look at this price pattern for all periods. Sure. That's yeah, exactly. You don't. And the, the, the thing is, is these kind of price patterns change every, I got to say, it's got to be every six months or something. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a constant research project and it's, uh, it's, it's always a dynamic and flexible kind of, system and you know I, I have the tools in place to kind of look for those kind of regularities so that, that's basically all i do i have a top-down kind of macro look at each commodity based on pricing models that have been tried and tested and then i have kind of a quote-unquote machine learning kind of process where i'm looking for price patterns where i can execute off sort of uh the backbone of this thing so the whole thing is trying to put a model together that's sort of independent of each other, but it all comes together into one interesting kind of, um, you know, wind at the back kind of trading model, which is all I look for. And what's your typical outlook for this sort of trade? Like, so so, so say, you know, we, we've talked about, you know, two week uh, performance of oil and like a few days of price action and whatever pattern for bonds. And okay, so if those are your inputs, what sort of output are you looking at in terms of the amount of time you're going to hold a given trade? So it can range from, um, you know, I, I don't, my, my whole uh, part of this research project was uh, to get away from kind of modeling for the short term kind of stuff. So in my trading and in my my world, I always did trading from a period of like six hours to 24 hours, but that's not where actually the real quote unquote alpha is using this stuff. So the time horizon on the systematic stuff that I'm using for Jade is probably between two and 15 days, which is kind of a sweet spot for uh, global macro traders, I think. Well, I mean, there's so many different styles, right? Of I mean, course. Yeah, yeah, so um, I think I think for most people, you know, a holding period of six hours is extreme to say the least on the short, you know, the the duration, you know, the time side. Sure. Of it. That's very high frequency, you know, high high portfolio turnover stuff. You know, even even anything less than a month is is relatively high turnover for a lot of investors. So, but but just to reiterate, you're looking at three days to three weeks, kind of roughly that kind of outlook. Correct. Correct. Yeah. 
Um, and so you have launched this research product. I mean, if, if anyone's interested in checking it out, it's jademkts.com, jademarkets.com, spelled MKTS. Um, and they're on Twitter as well, uh, jademarkets, spelled the normal way. Um, so, you know, basically you're, you're going through here and you're going through this, this huge, huge range of, you know, contracts of information and trying to, trying to pick out of all that statistical noise, you know, uh, a piece of information that you can use to, to profit. Yes. Um, that, you know, so some of the stuff I incorporate in that research project, you know, I mentioned like a regression of oil versus uh, interest rates or something. But, you know, there's a lot of other factors like seasonality, um, you know, trading days of the month, um, what other markets are doing. Um, so the, the whole part, the whole point of that kind of uh, research note is to kind of put everything together and put all the information out and then test that information and then come up with a few actionable ideas. And how many different actionable, I mean, so if you were running this as an actual portfolio, like yourself, you know, every day, how many positions would you typically have on? So there's been a uh, kind of model portfolio that I've been running since inception on that project. It started in April 11th and it typically takes about three trades a week. Um, so with an average hold time so far, it's been about four days. So that means one trade, sometimes a trade could be a day and a half. Sometimes a trade could take two weeks or something. But uh, out of the 18 trades or so, the average hold time was about four and a half days over the last month or so. And is that like if you were running this as like a, as your portfolio as opposed to like like a model research product? Um, would that be like consistent with how sort of you like to manage risk and like how you look at? you know, optimizing the trade-off between stuff you can manage and stuff that's available to take opportunity or take advantage of? Yes. Uh, the, yeah, it's it's modeled perfectly after what's uh, what's being done. When you're looking at some, I mean, some of these statistical models, is like, like, you know, a, a correlation is like a relatively straightforward thing. Um, but when you're doing them with, you know, I mean, how many assets are there here? I think we're it's looking at be like... At least 50. Yeah, call it 50, give or take assets. Um, is there any way to do that other than, you know, coming up with a coded solution? <clears throat> um, good question. Uh, I think I think markets change too quickly for you not to kind of have this stuff automated. I think you can be very sharp and very smart and you can have – I look, I, I've been in markets, you know, full-time since 2000. 14-ish. So I don't have the wealth of knowledge that I'm sure, you know, some of your previous guests have. And, you know, it's, I'm always learning every single day. And I'm sure everybody has a grand amount of intuition that, you know, that, that they can incorporate into a model, whether it be discretionary, whether it be systematic. Uh, what I kind of learned is why well, I, I like automation. I kind of like to make stuff easier and what I do is, and because markets change so, I, well, I have the belief that markets change so quickly. Um, I kind of have to model and uh, automate it, that whole process to make life easier for me. Right, right. So it's all you know, it's all a system of code and models spitting out like an outcome, and you know, trying to then sort through even that trimmed down like 
you know, automated output to come up with something that's that's actually actionable. It's a lot of it's a lot of noise, and it's sometimes it's mostly picking a needle in a haystack a lot of time. Do you you know have, have you yeah. like sort of developed any sort of process around like like how to do? I mean, because because when I come in and sit down every every morning, so like my process is like I come in and I I wake up at about five forty five in the morning and I start looking through what's happened overnight. You know, like so, you know, this morning. We had future, we have futures down big. Nasdaq's leading the sell-off in the U.S. futures market. This is all at 6 a.m. this morning on Monday, May 6th. Uh, the president tweeted something about tariffs on Sunday. We had a North Korean missile test, and you know, China got killed down the most since 2016, and it's returned from a holiday. And you know, so I'm sort of going through the big headline stuff and saying, okay, you know, what am I going to talk about in my first note of the day? You know, what is what's driving here, and sort of what stands out, and you know. Um, do you have a similar process where you're waking up, running your models and saying, okay, what, what happens now? Yeah. So it's a little bit, um, it's a little bit more engaged in the sense that because the models are a little bit more short term, I kind of have processes in place to alert me when, you know, the model portfolio is about to make changes or something. And then I have to get that out and I have to write about why, um, so it's kind of, you know, it's, it's around the clock kind of job. And in terms of processes, um, uh, it's kind of an all day thing. You know, I, I love the research process. I, I love sitting down and finding out why markets are doing something. It's, it's something I'm just fascinated with. Um, you know, I love finding stuff where, you know, people have zero, you know, kind of intuition where to look. I, I love, getting data out for my customers and I, and I love when they're you know happy with the stuff that I'm delivering. So I really enjoy the process of delivering kind of uh, the secret sauce, so to say. And, you know, sometimes it doesn't work, you know, it's, it's not, you know, nobody's got the, the Holy grail. It's just, I'm just trying to find a, uh, you know, kind of just a, a, a research process that that's helpful to a lot of people. So yeah, my process is around the clock. Um, you know, I, take breaks during the day, you know, I'm married, I have a wife and we'd like to go out sometimes too. So it's, but mostly it's, you know, me sitting in front of the screens research and when the markets close, okay, I got to test the closes when the markets reopen. Okay. I got to test the reopens, wake up sometimes, you know, if, if it's very busy, if new highs and lows are being made overnight. Well, sometimes you get alerts overnight and you got to send this stuff out. So, it's a, it's a full-time job, man. Yeah, I hear you. I, I know what that's like. Um, it's, it's interesting you say, you know, no one's got like the, the perfect view and everything. I think, you know, people very often are looking for gurus and for people that are like not going to steer them wrong. Um, and yeah. like that's impossible. <laughs> no, it's especially in the quant world now. I think a lot of people are shoving this idea down people's throats that like you can buy like some software, you can you know, subscribe to some quant research or something and, you know, you're going to be like the next, uh, you know, Jim Simons or something. And like, I, you know, I, I send out stuff that doesn't work a lot and it sucks, but that's, that's markets, you know, it's speculating. Um, there's, there's not a lot you can do about it. Yeah. That's, that's, I mean, again, using the Jesse Livermore analogy, like, you know, that, that, that was his whole thing. Like he was wrong a lot and said it, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. um, yeah. So as far as like the sort of trader that would find this sort of approach useful, like, you know, 
as as you said, like for you in monitoring all this stuff, it's a 24 hour a day job. Um, for someone that's just managing their IRA or something like that, you know, I would hope for most people they're not just you know staring at screens all day. I would hope they have families or friends or you know uh, a job of their own or whatever. But um, they're like, so what sort of trader like most does this most appeal to in your in your view? I think it appeals to um, anybody who's. Uh kind of got the short-term time horizon of, you know, a couple of weeks to a few days. Um, and if they're interested in uh, index trading, uh, commodity trading, and uh, futures trading. So that's, that's, the, that's the, main, the main products that I'm looking for. You know, sometimes I, you know, like two days ago I did a sugar trade. And, you know, most people don't even have sugar data. You know, it's a, it's a completely separate exchange. It's on the ice. And it's, you know, a lot of the people I sent it out to, they can't even trade it. So sometimes you have these weird inefficiencies that, uh, you know, even in some markets that people can't trade. So my whole focus mainly is index, uh, you know, gold, oil, and treasury bonds with a, with a time horizon of two, two days to about, you know, three weeks. And... Uh, yeah, anybody who's interested in that might find whatever I'm doing uh, hopefully helpful. Is your would you describe your your process as entirely price based in the sense that you're not taking any sort of fundamental model of like, you know, oh, new home sales were bad, therefore interest rates should be lower or something like that. Like you're entirely looking at how markets relate to themselves and and to um, each other as opposed to taking some sort of fundamental model of how the world or the economy works and saying, oh, well, then the price should be, you know, if X, then the price should be Y. Uh, so glad you asked. So I, I didn't d dive too much into my whole Niederhofer experience. So one of the things that we got out, most of the guys who went there, I'm sure, got out of working with Victor was being very open-minded about testing things. So whenever a new economic data com indicator comes out, I, I always test it. And I always do a regression based on the year-over-year -year change, quarter-over-quarter -quarter change, week-over-week -week change, that impact on other markets. And a lot of the times, it's actually quite significant, um, especially based on what the market was doing before the announcement. Um, yeah, I have the testing environment to, to check those kind of variables out. And sometimes, you know, I, I give a six-month uh, kind of outlook and the whole research process out. Uh, you know, the focus is definitely systematic trading but uh it's a research process and when i find something uh that's you know based on an often economic indicator that might tie into how i'm going to trade an index over the next you know two to three months yeah i'm going to send it out and give research about it because it might you know it might help out with uh with other trades that I was so again doing. hypothetically like let's say there's a huge nfp beat and you know really strong data in the employment situation report that's going to color your outlook now again hypothetically i'm not saying this is actually how, how your model works but you know hypothetically that may color that may color how you're going to trade the bonds how you're going to trade the dollar how you're going to trade stocks over the next you know month two months three months um in that sort of initial top-down cut Sure. As long as the data backs up the kind of theory, then yeah, it's it's always a good uh, it's a good thing to know. It's I 
again, back to the whole Victor thing, he, it was very, it was very, uh, we always see our, looked at ourselves like kind of just like explorers, you know, and you always take observations and you have to know everything about what's going on. And, you know, every, every product is its own animal and you have to, you have to know about how these, the ecology of all these things impact each other. So yeah, like when an NFP number comes out of the wild and it's much different than one of those before, then we have to look at previous times when it's done that and how it affected the, the whole ecology. So did he at all give you a different way to think about risk? Like one of the things I like talking to folks about is like their approach to risk management. So for instance, why you're putting on, you know, three or four trades a week in that model portfolio, as opposed to putting on 12 or 15 or 20, um, is, is there a conception of, of managing the risk of capital or managing the amount of resources you have um, to track stuff? Um, like, how do you think about risk management in that context? Yeah, so in terms of risk management, um, I think I was blessed to have the experience in the sense that uh, I've been around traders that have had either too wild of a kind of risk management process or too conservative of one. And it's very rare that you find a static framework where somebody can knows when to be conservative and when knows when to be kind of aggressive. And a lot of nobody can do that perfectly, I think. And my whole job with the model portfolio now is I don't do any sort of um, averaging in the sense that you know it's you get in at one price and you get out at one price and that's it. Because when you start to what I learned is when you start to incorporate um, uh, how do you say averaging in the sense that. Uh, you're, you're basically playing 3D chess instead of playing checkers. My whole thing is I, I want to play checkers using my edge. Just get in at one price, get out at one price. When you start to have a different risk management process in the sense that, okay, you're going to buy here, here, here. You're going to get out here, here, here. You're, if it goes, this goes this way. Well, you're, you're now, you're playing a completely different game, which... Uh, you're adding complexity. You're adding, yeah, absolutely. It's, 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 not, tra- it's not trading anymore. And it's so good to be... What, what I learned from, you know, the last, how many years has it been? It's got to be six years now. Last six years is you, you don't want to add any more complexity. It's, it doesn't make any sense. Um, so my risk management process is very simple in the sense that I'm testing everything. You know, there's, there's always a max amount that I don't want the model to lose and it'll get out, whatever. If it's a bad price, who cares? It's just time to move on. And, you know, when things work, it's never good to take a meager profit. So it's, it's, uh, you got to let things run sometimes too. Um, it sounds like a very binary position level process as opposed to thinking about, you know, the portfolio as a whole or thinking about, you know, a projected absolute return you want to get to. It's more like, you know, um, an analogy I might, that might work here is um, playing the man as opposed to playing the ball. Um, sure. like just, you know, I can control this trade, the risk parameters for this specific action. I can't control, you know, everything. So I'm going to focus on controlling these parameters as best I can without, you know, working out to stuff that is more complex and easier to screw up. Sure. And when you're only focusing on like three positions a week, um, it's not, yeah, it's not, it's not too overwhelming from a risk management standpoint. It's either working or it's not working. 
and uh, you know, it's it's the, the whole point of this project was to kind of send out you know a few trades a week that hopefully will mostly work. And there's there's very minimal stress involved in. I mean, there's always stress, but there's minimal stress involved with uh, kind of watching these things when you only have a few positions on. So as far as the current backdrop goes, can you can you talk a little bit about some of the interesting top down things you're seeing right now, like relationships between markets or, um, you know, with respect to economic data? You know, as as you said before, this is only like sort of this would only be the very first cut of any potential analysis for you in a. In, a, in identifying an opportunity, but um, I'd just be curious to, to hear what you have to say on sort of where things are overall, because we're at a pretty interesting point in the global economy and the global financial markets where, you know, things have rallied so much. Things were looking so bad in December and they've now rallied so much. And it seems like we've kind of hit a bit of a vacuum in terms of catalysts as far as, uh, you know, US earnings are winding down a little bit and the Fed is basically doing everything they can to tell us they're going to be on pause the rest of the year. And that's pretty much that. And, you know, Chinese stimulus stuff, like you've seen less focus on that. You've seen, you know, a lot of sort of, I I certainly had a lot of optimism about some of the numbers out of Europe. And so people are sort of, you know, trying to figure out if Europe's going to bounce or not. Like, so there's a lot of different sort of waiting for more information, waiting for catalysts. And then, you know, we have a big drop in the markets over uh, the start of the week over Sunday night. Um, be really interesting to hear sort of your take on, on where things sit, like top down in the stuff you watch. Sure. So, yeah, I'm glad you brought up 2018 because it was kind of a very interesting year. It, it kind of reinforced this idea I had about uh, the ecology of asset managers in the sense that we already were down like, 10% before December, right? And uh, I don't think anybody wanted to be down like 12% into year end. So when we were when we started going to like down, we were, when we were down like 11% in December, 12%, the markets went down, 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 down. And that kind of reinforced the idea I had that people actually kind of pull out, at, you know, especially asset managers, to kind of pull out at worst possible prices just to avoid being down any more than they have to. And that kind of sucked everybody out, and we just went straight back up. Um, you know, th- so that, that that whole thing was was a very very interesting uh, dynamic where a lot of these guys got sucked out, and you know there was a lot of financial propaganda in the sense that okay, a bear market has now started. And the whole way it, it was it was also so interesting too because you know like Europe had been dropping all year long and like yeah the you know, DAX was already down a lot yeah. yeah so like you know there there was some bad stuff out there and like you know some European data some Chinese data didn't look great but like U.S. economic data was fine and there was no real reason to expect earnings to plunge like the dollar wasn't ripping you know like it sort of seemed like people were grasping at straws to come up with a reason you know to explain price action as opposed to, you know, having a thesis, like a top-down thesis that played out in terms of big, big market moves. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you don't have to be a quant to kind of know that, well, typically when markets have their worst quarter, they kind of have like a really good quarter later on. Um, so anybody who was kind of bearish, like going into the first quarter, it was, it was I, I don't know. It was, every, everybody has their own way of articulating information. And there was certainly plenty of reasons to be scared based on, the price action and you know based on the way it happened that's the way you know that's the way it happened we went we went back up but there could have been a number of scenarios that could have caused us to go the other way and we could have kept grinding down lower but you know that wasn't the case uh, in hindsight of course 
So, you know, some of the things that I'm noticing from the systematic stuff now, I'll, I'll share one thing. I don't really want to get too into the discrepancies now, but there's something that's been fundamentally changing about how new lows in the market um, are uh, being manifested in the future. So from 2000 until 2017, a great system was to buy a new five-day closing low in the S&P and get out at the first profitable close. Like this system made you money 90% of the time. Like it was just a great system. In other words, markets typically didn't fall for more than five days in a row. Yeah. When you had a five-day closing low, meaning that the the fifth... Oh, sorry. Closing low, not fifth straight. Sorry. Yeah. So yeah, exactly. So when you had a, a, a the lowest close of five days in the SPY, then you would buy that close and you would get out at the first profitable close in the next five days and you would make money 90% of the time. So that actually completely stopped working uh, about two years ago and actually closing lows like on a five day period have actually been a little bit more bearish than they have in the past, which I don't really know why. I think maybe it has something to do with um, just just the way the short vol dynamic has been playing out, just all these people buying, you know, or shorting vol, and the way that's been being manifested into the, you know, the the, the S and P five hundred contract. Because um, if you if you think about it like from a gamma perspective, right? So like in in options pricing, like um, you know, the delta um, is your um, exposure to the change in the underlying gamma is your exposure to the change in the, the exposure to the, to the delta, right? So it's like the second derivative of price. Yeah. Um, so like if you if you think about the market being really short gamma, like you would think that that would lead to sort of these these back and forth snapbacks where like you know you would see a new low and then things would snap back like mean revert, you know, in very short um, time periods. Um, as opposed to momentum sustaining downward, right? Like, like generally, you would think about things in terms of like back and forth in a range, as opposed to, you know, very sharp violent moves in a range, as opposed to, you know, sustained big pushes um, once an objective had been reached, like a new low objective had been reached. So, it, like, it's almost like the market is not as short gamma now as they used to be, or something like that. I don't know. I mean, maybe that's wrong. I, just an idea. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. It's hard to articulate why. Or how that's that's being manifested, but like a five-day closing low, it, it hasn't been that bullish as you would think. So it's always um, it's always interesting now. Everybody's so conditioned to kind of you know, and trust me, I'm one of the biggest permables you'll you'll have on here. But you, you'll it's good to be a permable when when everything's backed up. But a five-day closing low hasn't been that bullish. Um, now we did have a five-day closing low on Thursday. Uh, last week, and we actually ramped right back up to. Uh, I think we closed higher on the next day, so that was kind of a profitable trade. But now we're all the way back down here. You know, we had a almost a two percent decline since last Thursday. So um, yeah, it's, it's definitely a shift in the term in the dynamic in terms of how um, how the market is is uh, is kind of playing out in this dynamic. Um, do you have any views on on sort of where the economy's at and where like anything that the that economic data is suggesting right now? I mean, 
arguably we're late cycle, but it's it's the best time to be a, a U.S. consumer, U.S. kind of business. It's you know, it, I don't really look at uh, economic data for forecasting. You know, years sure. and years yeah, out. Yeah. yeah. So you know, business is great. Um, American consumerism is great, and it's always great to be an optimist. Um, but you know, we're definitely late cycle. We're you know, you have these articles that like have central banks completely eradicated the business cycle. Well, <laughs> we won't know until like the end of the business cycle, and it's pretty obvious. But um, yeah, it's it's I'm quite optimistic. I do think it's interesting to talk about like you know how the business cycle has changed, especially since and not since like 2007, but since like you know the late 1980s. I think you can make a really really strong case that central banks have been successful in reducing. Uh, sorry, substantially prolonging business cycles and reducing their volatility. Um, but, you know, like the, the best example of this is obviously Australia that hasn't had a recession in like 20 years. Um, but there's a difference between, you know, substantially lengthening cycles and eliminating them. <laughs> now, I have, a, I have a question for you, George. Do you think that that manifestation of you know, longer business cycles and shorter volatility, do you think that's a function of central bank and interventionism or is that a function of uh, more transparency in, tech, in the sense that how we've evolved as a society in the sense of dealing with misinformation and reacting to kind of volatility events? Do you think that through time that's just a natural kind of evolution? Um, I think there's a lot of stuff going on. I think policy is absolutely part of it. I mean, if you look at how the Fed reacted in, you know, the, the early Volcker years to, to economic data versus how they reacted in the late 1990s or how they've reacted since 20, you know, 11, um, I think you, you absolutely, there is a difference in how policymakers react to what's going on in the economy and what, yeah, didn't Volcker raise like interest rates like two percent overnight? Yeah, I mean Volcker. Volcker literally <laughs> had on his desk like um, you know a, a piece of a board length that was sent to him by construction workers saying like you're killing us, you have to lower rates because you're destroying our our industry, you know like. Um, there was a very there was a ton of willingness to like really socket to um, output in order to you know, get inflation under control. Now, obviously comparing that environment in terms of demographics and in terms of other non-demand um, related drivers of inflation is like not at all realistic. I, I, I don't think it's at all comparable in terms of the specifics of the situation. But, you know, I will say that it, it seems to me like, like post 1985, we have had a very different relationship between monetary policy and the economic cycle. And I think that is, <coughs> excuse me, I think that is at least in part responsible for the the lengthening and the mellowing of business cycles. Um, you know, sure. if you look at um, inventories relative to GDP, like like um, inventories relative to final sales of goods and structures um, is a, is a good example. There has been a secular downtrend in those measures for a long time. Like like inventory management has gotten more efficient. Um, you see feedback cycles from you know when a demand you know when inventories get low, order new products or you know add capacity in some way if you're a services in um, business. You know that that sort of evolution away from goods and manufacturing oriented economic output to a more services oriented output that also has definitely played a role for sure. No question. Um, sure. you know, yeah. as 
for bigger societal stuff, like you mentioned, I mean, it's so hard to know one way or the other. I like, I, I certainly think the evolution of commerce has played a big role, um, whether the evolution of how our society thinks about itself and what's going on around it. Um, that's, that's maybe beyond my remit, but, um, you know, it, it, it's definitely interesting that, that the business cycle now appears to be a much longer beast than it used to be. Yeah. I, I, I don't think that, uh, anybody who's like, Oh my God, we're 10 years into a business cycle. Uh, you know, we're coming, we must be coming to an end. Like, I, I don't think that's a very rational way of looking at how um, how we how far we've come in terms of you know how, like you said monetary policy and how we've kind of adapted to kind of managing uh, business expectations and kind of uh, reacting to kind of uh, business decisions you know yeah there's like that exogenous policy side of things I mean the other thing is like if you look at um, the percentage of the population that's on social security or the percentage of the population um, that is, uh, you know, dependent in some way or another, like if you're, okay, so if you're a social security receiving retiree and like that's your primary source of income, which is most retirees, it's, it's a significant source of their income, if not primary. Fundamentally, there is no business cycle risk in that social security check. It does not exist. It's coming no matter what. It's backed by the full face and credit of the United States government. So it's going to take a lot of volatility out of the markets. Like if you've got a lot more people employed in in market employment, whether it's you know working for the private business or private business or what have you, you know that's going to fundamentally be more volatile from quarter to quarter, year to year than you know if you're receiving some sort of um, some sort of payment from the government. So I think that's another, you know, just the natural aging of people into social security, the the slowing growth of the prime age working population, you know, lower structure, what appear to be structurally lower employment population ratios, like those things, which, you know, also large income inequality, like those things all plausibly could lead to, to less volatile business cycles. I, I do think that like trying to time, as you said, trying to time mobile, like business cycles typically last X years. And so, you know, this is going to lead, that means this business cycle can't last longer than Y years. I think that's nuts. I think that's completely useless. No, it's, well, that, that's, that's actually uh, what, you, what you're describing is actually a common kind of argument between kind of the systematic quant world is, well, are you overfitting your data for one, you know, time period? And my whole thing is to kind of get away from that is like, I, I don't really, you know, I, I don't test anything really beyond for price patterns, not nothing beyond two years for the longer regression term stuff. Yeah. I think like 20 years is a good place to start, but, um, you know, you, you can't be so one dimensional and thinking that because this happened this way, it's going to be like this, uh, especially because no time period in the history of there are, there are similarities, but nothing's the same. You know, it's two, it's almost 2020. It's, it's, it's an amazing time to be alive. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy to think about the fact that it's been like two decades since the tech bubble. I was looking at um, like some IPO data the other day and like, you know, the tech bubble was really getting underway, like in terms of the big IPOs and stuff, like almost 10 years ago now or almost 20 years ago now, sorry, two decades, which is, you know, if you think about how much you like you and I are going to change in, in two decades, like what you think now versus what you thought, you know, two decades ago, it's like almost you can't even it's it's you can't even compare them right like so well the for society as a whole that, yeah go ahead yeah no i mean that that's that's pretty much it okay well the caveat to that is like okay everybody in 2000 let's say 
I think they envisioned the world, and I wasn't around investing at that time, but I'm pretty sure it's the world they envisioned then what it is now. Maybe I'm wrong, but we're completely more of a service-oriented industry. We are amazing technological capabilities, moving definitely towards the whole automation space. You know, we got electric cars. It's just, it's really quite amazing. Um, so, and ironically, it took 20 years for the Nasdaq to get to a new all-time high. So are we kind of living the prospect of the Nasdaq bubble now? Yeah, like like we're finally reaping the rewards now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I think I think it's a good point. I mean, you can hear in how Peter's talking, like, I mean, it's not hard to see why you would be a permable if that's your fundamental outlook that like, you know, the world is getting better. Like we are living in the future, to, you know, that that silly uh, IBM commercial with um, right, right. with what's what was what was his name? Um, oh, man. Uh, common where he's like, we're living in the future we always dreamed of. And I mean, it's easy to make fun of that. And like, there's a lot of terrible stuff that goes on in the world. And like, you know, a lot of, a lot of work to do, but like in a lot of senses we are like, I can, you know, we're recording this conversation now. I'm, I'm sitting in my home in Charlotte, North Carolina, you're up in New York. Like we're doing this all on, if not free, then very cheap and easy to access tools. You could be literally anywhere in the world, you know, electric cars are mass market. Like there's all sorts of different stuff today that is just like revolutionary by the standards of a few, you know, two decades ago um, that fundamentally changed how we think about the world. Yeah. And yeah, and how we interact with the world and how we set expectations for the future, for sure. Yeah, which is obviously very important for markets. Yeah. Um, so before we close out, I always like to do this trading rich, trading cheap segment where I get your take um, on a couple different things. You can give a one word answer or you can go into a bit more detail. Um, so uh, right now, I don't have the, my dang markets up. Where are we at? Uh, right now, the S&P 500 is down uh, 1%. No, sorry. Yeah, 1%. Uh, as the S&P cash is down 1%, 29.9 points. Um, do you think the S&P 500 is trading rich or trading cheap? Uh, <laughs> I think it's uh, it's trading a little rich in the context of uh, a two-week time horizon, let's say. Okay. Uh, related, uh, we had a presidential tweet over the weekend, which is always fun. Um, apparently, we're going to be not only expanding the <clears throat> current levies on a bunch of Chinese products, but also start uh, adding 25% tariffs to a, a large tranche of 300 plus billion that hadn't been um, receiving direct tariffs. Um, so do you think the, the trade talk, um, you know, we're going to get some sort of agreement. We're not going to get some sort of agreement. Do you think, do you think that like dynamic of focusing on trade um, in the markets is uh, overvalued is trading rich or trading cheap? Um, the dialogue of it. Yeah. Just like the fact that it's good. It gets so much focus. You know what? I used to think it's not, it was such a cheap talk, but like you have one tweet and the market's gap down 2%. So I think it's actually much richer than people might expect. And when we actually get a real announcement off any trade news, then um, yeah, it might be, might be much more interesting than people think. So I think cheap based on market reactions. Interesting. I mean, I like, I, I love to just harp on how it's absolutely ridiculous how much it gets focused on, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. And I, I stand by that view to a point, but it is hard to argue with the, with the degree markets have reacted to it. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's definitely over-focused in the sense that there's nothing actually real 
yet, but there's yeah, the price reactions are actually much more uh, wide than you would think, you know, off of rumors and stuff like that. So with that in mind, uh, the U.S. dollar is you know I, I like to look at the Bloomberg U.S. dollar index, which is a little bit broader than the classic Dixie. Mm-hmm. Uh, all sorts of problems in the construction of the the classic index, but. Um, yeah. So the U.S. dollar is is elevated within its range, but but definitely not at some sort of extreme level. Um, do you think the U.S. dollar is trading rich or trading cheap? Oh, good question. I I don't I don't know. I've studied previous cycles where we are now, where you know the dollar actually gets kind of stronger in this kind of fiscal tightening kind of period. And now that you know, now we're getting signals that we're getting a new policy shift from the Fed. So I, you know what, it's it's kind of hard to say. It seems like like just watching the price action every day, like the dollar has not been moving much other than when you know big levels. So like last week, um, the after the ECB, the euro took out some big levels and hit 52-week lows and extended lower. Um, yeah, you know, so it when, sort of reversed that. Yeah. It, it did sort of reverse that, but in the short term, like you know, that sort of drove a dollar bid that then worked itself off. Like we haven't been able to sustain a move either way, really. Like you see, technical levels get taken out in a certain cross, and that'll drive like the dollar for a little bit, but like it can't yeah. sustain either higher or lower, which is really interesting. It's like very it's much the opposite of 2014, 2015. It, the currency vol is just completely dead. Um, that that's what I've seen. Do you have? Do you think there's any specific reason for that? Um, you know, a lot of the FX traders I talk to, they can, I, I get four different, five different narratives, but it's, I don't know why I think I, until the, maybe we have something from Brexit, maybe that'll be the catalyst, but it's, it's very hard to figure out why you know? we just, we had this big, you know, move in the S and P, but the yen only gapped up like what was it like a quarter of a percent or something? Yeah. So it was. It was. Yeah. These these moves are definitely muted relative to what's going on in uh, you know other instruments. So it's so it's interesting. I don't really know why though. All right. Last thing. Um. You are you have just launched an independent research service and and just again for everybody that's at Jade Markets on Twitter and jademkts.com. Um, um. You just launched Jade. So obviously you know I, I think you're going to come out. I think I can predict which way you're going to come out on this, but do you think independent research is is trading rich or trading cheap right now? I think I picked a terrible time to start a independent research. <laughs> it's definitely <laughs> it's definitely rich, um, and the competition is, um, you know, it's it, there's not a lot of unique stuff out there. Um, obviously, you know, I. I I, I highly regard your product and, you know, I've been a member of companies where we subscribe to Bespoke and everybody speaks very highly of Bespoke and you're definitely a premium uh, tier kind of research product. But, you know, there's just a lot of guys who just, uh, yeah, they, they don't offer anything unique. Um, and you this, see that as a, as a headwind for the business as a whole or as opposed to an opportunity? I see that as an opportunity, which is why I kind of started it now um, because, yeah, it's just really a lot of guys who don't really have that much, um, especially on the quant side. There's not a lot of guys who actually have much kind of buy side experience, uh, quantitative trading. Um, so I, th- I thought it would be a good decision to start this one up. But in this, in the whole grand scheme of things, I think it, the research industry, especially independent ones, is definitely oversaturated. Awesome. Well, with that, uh, we'll say goodbye. Peter, thanks so much for joining us on Bespokecast today, man. Yeah, George, thank you very much for having me. 
Thanks for joining us this week on the Bespoke Cast. Once again, I'm Bespoke Investment Group's macro strategist, George Perks. If you enjoy Bespoke Cast, please consider reviewing the podcast in the iTunes Store or on your favorite podcast platform. Reviews help us gain visibility and also help us improve the podcast in future episodes. If you'd like to learn more about our firm, please visit bespokepremium.com and follow us on Twitter at Bespoke Invest. Our research includes reports, analysis, commentary, and data sets sent out daily. Special thanks to the Free Music Archive for the music featured in this episode. The track is called Marathon Man by Jason Shaw and is made available under the Creative Commons license. Please visit freemusicarchive.org for more information. Copyright 2017, Bespoke Investment Group, LLC. The information herein was obtained from sources Bespoke Investment Group, LLC believes to be reliable, but we do not guarantee its accuracy. Neither the information nor any opinions expressed constitute a solicitation of the purchase or sale of any securities or related instruments. Bespoke Investment Group, LLC is not responsible for any losses incurred from any use of this information.